three, two, one. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Jason Belcher, small business owner, military veteran. We're going to do two editions this week. The first one is going to be talking about the uh, the shocking and rather dramatic events that took place in Kabul and are still taking place with the collapse of the former Afghan regime and the uh, return of the Taliban. And let's take a quick listen as to what that sounds like. Play cut one. Gunfire rang out earlier as crowds raced to catch a flight at the airport, and this scene appears to be on the tarmac. CNN cannot independently verify it, but video shows masses of people scrambling up a gangplank to get on board a plane. The U.S. Embassy is even warning Americans not to go to the airport, and that's despite all embassy staff being evacuated there. The U.S. said earlier the airport perimeter and air traffic control were being secured by U.S. troops. Meanwhile, the Taliban are setting up shop in Kabul. Ousted President Ashraf Ghani has fled the country, and video from Al Jazeera shows heavily armed Taliban fighters in the presidential palace. They've asked their old enemies, the U.S., to trust them and say a future government will include non-Taliban Afghans. But many, including Afghans who worked for the U.S., fear Taliban reprisals. So the first thing we want to do is to try and make some sense out of what we just heard and to help folks try and understand what they're seeing and hearing happening in the uh, Afghan capital right now. We're going to get a couple of reactions from folks who've been there, uh, starting with retired Major Richard Ojeda. Play cut two. What's up, everybody? Major retired Richard Ojeda here. And like you, I'm watching the horrors of what's going on in Afghanistan. But unlike you, I served in Afghanistan and I'm torn. We need to end this forever war. But I worry about the people that stood by our side, the interpreters, the workers, and their families. People like Nikki Haley, Dick Cheney, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, they promote these wars because it enriches them both financially and politically. President Biden made a promise to the American people to end these forever wars. We cannot continue for another 20 years under combat conditions. It's time to bring our troops home. And I appreciate the deal that was made with Qatar to provide these interpreters and their families safe passage to the country of Qatar. But Mr. President, if you can hear this, please understand that the Taliban will not hesitate to kill our allies and our friends. Please help speed this up. I'm in communication with quite a few of the people that served by my side and they're fearing for their lives. Please help. Sappers clear the way, airborne all the way. Okay, that was retired Army Major Richard Ojeda speaking on his uh, YouTube channel, Airborne. Now I want to play a, a brief, about a similar length, a brief clip from retired Colonel Mike Jason, who was giving an, an interview on NPR uh, when asked the same question about what his feelings were about what he's seeing uh, in Afghanistan right now. Play cut three. Highest point in 2011, the number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan hit 98,000, but many more service members have cycled in and out of that country over America's 20-year involvement there. Mike Jason is one of them. He led troops in Kuwait, the Balkans, and Iraq. He spent much of 2012 working with the Afghan Special Forces in northern Afghanistan. When I spoke to him yesterday, I asked for his reaction to the swift fall of the Afghan military. I think the speed is, is alarming to all of us uh, that serve there. Uh, but, you know, for me, there was also a sense of deja vu 
uh, having watched ISIS, you know, just completely take over Mosul, where I had been just three years earlier, I mean, there was a sense of like, this is happening again. And it's, it's tragic. It's in a way numbing. But I have, I'm also texting with friends and colleagues in the Afghan military that are on the ground right now. I'm also texting with the gold star a widow of one of my best friends who died in Afghanistan, uh, several actually, and we're all watching this unfold in real time. It's just, it's, it's a bit uh, horrifying and, and, and really, uh, it, it's just difficult to watch. And finally, to give us just a little bit of perspective from the ground, I want to listen to a brief clip from Mahboba Siraj speaking to Farid Zakaria from Kabul this week. Play cut four. When the Taliban last ruled over Afghanistan from 1996 until the U.S. invasion in 2001, women and girls were treated in ways that can only be described as medieval. They were not allowed to go to school or to go to work. 62% of girls were married off before the age of 18 violence against women was rampant. Will this be the fate of Afghan women again? Joining me now is Mahbuba Saraj of the Afghan Women's Network, an extraordinary organization. Mahbuba, first let me just ask you as somebody, an Afghan living in Afghanistan, have you been surprised by the collapse of the government and the army and the police force? You know, uh, yes and no. Uh, Yes, I have been surprised because of the way it collapsed, the way it went so fast. In a matter of two days, you know, four provinces of Afghanistan um, going into the hands of Taliban. And I was wondering what on earth could be doing that. But then again, at the same time, uh, because of the way this country has become in the corruption the way it is in the world and in Afghanistan today, I knew we were sold out. So most part, and that's exactly what happened. And that's why we are where we are um, today and so fast. That's exactly what it is. But the problem uh, of corruption in the regime in Kabul has been around for a long time, almost since the regime was founded. And it's been systematic. That means every level and every branch of the government uh, of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, what we used to call Jeroa, uh, the, the corruption problem in Jeroa has been so widespread that it has helped fuel Afghan support for the Taliban. And, and here's how that works. You know, the ordinary Afghans see that government officials in Kabul are being you know, well paid and well taken care of, mostly by, by U.S. taxpayer dollars, by the way. But they live a completely different style of life and have a completely different way of doing things in the capital than anywhere else in the countryside. And because of that, and, and by the way, the, the officials in the capital of Afghanistan are, are not very responsive to public demand, despite the fact that we have, have had several elections. They aren't very responsive to, to the public demand from uh, ordinary Afghans. And so the Afghan people know that. They can see that. They understand that the, the regime in Kabul was corrupt, and the Taliban exploited that. They exploited that in a number of different ways. One of the ways they exploited that was by establishing what were called shadow governments out in the countryside away from the Afghan capital. Shadow governments basically were a situation where the Taliban would set up a court, for example, and pronounce sentence for ordinary uh, criminal activities. For example, if someone was accused of stealing or of assault, rather than go to an official government 
court or agency, which were almost non-existent, or even the ones that did exist were, were poorly manned and staffed and didn't work. They were so dysfunctional that they were essentially just empty buildings. Rather than go there, Afghans would then go to the Taliban to receive a measure of justice. And that allowed the Taliban to establish their own credibility as the legitimate governing force in Afghanistan rather than the Afghan government. And that wasn't an isolated incident. That type of thing happened across the countryside. It happened across Afghanistan. In district after district, in town and city after town and city, instead of the government from Kabul establishing and providing for the public goods, including security and justice, which is what a government is supposed to do, instead of that, what we had was a situation where the Taliban positioned themselves to provide that. And that's how they gained a measure of the public trust. Not to say that ordinary Afghans ever stopped knowing who the Taliban were or what they were. They did. They knew that. But with the regime in Kabul so corrupt and unable to provide any of the necessary services that Afghans needed for daily life, they inevitably turned to the one source that could provide those services, even if it was, even if that service was provided by the Taliban in a very brutal manner, it was at least provided efficiently. So they could get some measure of justice from a Taliban court, or they could get no justice at all from a Jaroa court. And over the course of time, as the years went on, more and more Afghans began to choose the Taliban system. Not because they necessarily, necessarily thought the Taliban were, were great guys, or that that's who they wanted running their country, but rather because in those situations, the Taliban was able to provide the public services that the Afghan government was not. One of the things we have to confront when we look at the situation unfolding today in Afghanistan is simply this. There have been four presidents since the United States ground forces first went into Afghanistan. We've had four presidential administrations overseeing the war in Afghanistan. And of those four, not a single one ever figured out how to manage the situation in Afghanistan. That's two Democrats, two Republicans, so it doesn't matter. The partisan arguments, I'm sure, will continue, but really they don't have any bearing on the situation because none of the four administrations that have governed this war ever understood or figured out what was going on in Afghanistan. And that should, that should be very troubling to all of us. That's a long time. Twenty years is a long time to study and try and understand or figure out a situation. And, and granted, the situation in Afghanistan is a complicated one. It's a complex place, and it doesn't lend itself to easy understanding or analysis. That's 100% that's true. But 20 years is a long time, and the amount of resources available to the U.S. government are enormous. So despite the enormous amount of time and despite the enormous amount of resources, our government could not figure out Afghanistan, and the American people deserve to know why. The way the Taliban came back to power, the way in which the events have unfolded over the past couple of days, and as I'm speaking this, we, we're just now seeing the, the Taliban sweep back into Kabul and take control of the government. It, it's just absolute chaos, and it's an absolute disaster. There's no question that getting us out of Afghanistan was the right thing to do. I, I think the American public has a pretty strong agreement on that, and I, I share that sentiment. Leaving Afghanistan was the right thing. Now what I'm talking about, though, is the way in which that exit took place. There appears to have been either a total lack of planning and thought put into this process, or 
the thought and, and planning that was put into it was based on a complete misunderstanding, rather I would say a total lack of awareness as to the ground truth in Afghanistan. And I think we need to understand why that is, how that could possibly have happened. I absolutely think there should be congressional hearings and a congressional investigation on this, not just on the, the disaster and the absolute catastrophe that we've seen unfold over the past couple of days, which speaks to the lack of preparation for the, for the American exit from Afghanistan. But it needs to, to address the larger questions of why four presidential administrations were unable to figure this out. What caused us to spend $2 trillion, thousands of lives, and spend 20 years in Afghanistan with no clear understanding of a mission or, the, or, or if we had a clear understanding of a mission without any clear ability to successfully achieve it? As I mentioned in a previous podcast, we did accomplish the mission of, of, of finding and eliminating the, the people who were responsible for the 9-11 attacks. We did that. We did find Al-Qaeda. We did eliminate the, the operatives that they had and the planners that helped them carry out the 9-11 attacks. So in that sense, in that very narrow military sense, we were successful. But there's no doubt that by our own emissions, we defined our operations in Afghanistan by a much larger and a much broader set of goals and expectations. And there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that we completely failed to achieve pretty much any of them. And that needs to be addressed. We need to understand why. How did that happen? And so I 100% support the idea that there should be congressional hearings and a congressional investigation because the American people deserve to understand why and how that could possibly have happened. And more importantly, if we don't understand how and why this happened, we almost guarantee that this will happen at some point in the future again. Maybe it'll be another 50 or 60 years before America suffers an attack from a foreign, from a foreign attacker. But it's going to happen eventually. At some point it will happen. And if we're unprepared, if we haven't learned the lessons from this conflict, then we'll be doomed to repeat the same mistakes. And that would be not only a tragedy, it would also be a preventable tragedy because we have it within our power to get answers. We have it within our power to do an investigation. We have it within our power to try and understand what happened, what went wrong, and what we could have done differently so that in the future we can do things differently. And I hope that there would be a spirit of bipartisanship on this. There were many, there were many Republican leaders in Congress who were willing to stick their neck out politically and say they wanted to investigate former President Trump when that administration crossed the line. And if we want to continue to see that type of integrity, and I'll say it myself as a registered Democrat, we absolutely need to do an investigation of the Biden administration uh, on the exit plan for Afghanistan and why it was such a catastrophe. We absolutely do, because look at it. It was a catastrophe. It was a failure. It was unacceptable. This is not acceptable to us as the American people, and it's not acceptable to our Afghan allies who've helped us all these years. So we definitely need to do an investigation, and there definitely needs to be hearings in order to get to the bottom of this. And I hope that in the future, there will be. But now the Taliban are back, and they're in charge of the government of Kabul. They've taken over the government of Afghanistan, and it is now, once again, like it was back in the mid-90s, a Taliban government. And pay attention to the images and to the pictures that you see 
of the Taliban sitting around the, the presidential palace. And you'll notice that not one of the folks in those pictures has any gray in their beards. This is a young generation of Taliban. These folks, these men are probably in their 30s, some of them even in their 20s, maybe a few in their 40s. The older generation of Taliban, the ones who were around in the mid-90s, have died either from old age or combat. So what we're dealing with today is a completely new generation of Taliban. They say that they will govern differently than the previous generation. I don't believe them. I highly doubt it. But the fact is, now they're in charge of Afghanistan, and we're going to find out. We're going to find out whether or not their statements that they make about governing differently will be true or whether or not they were just saying what they think the outside world wanted to hear so the outside world would leave them alone. There's a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions, though, not just among uh, the American public, uh, but also American policymakers as to who and what the Taliban actually is. And that continues to this day. A really good book on, on Afghanistan that's coming out soon is called The War in Afghanistan, A History, written by Carter Mulcazian. The book makes, the excerpts at least that we've seen so far, make some really good points. But one of the things that gets very wrong is the role of Islam in generating support for the Taliban. And a lot of people get this, get this wrong. A lot of people think because the Taliban uses suicide bombers, they take that as an indication of, of support. They look at that, uh, the suicide attacks as an act of devotion on the part of a, a committed believer. But that's not always the case. In fact, the Taliban has actually paid the families of suicide bombers uh, pretty significant sums of money, and they tell that to the person who's going to carry out the mission. And then on other occasions, they'll say, well, if you don't go through with the mission, not only won't we pay your family, but we'll kill them. So some of those suicide bombers, if not many, are there and are carrying out their missions under threat. They're not doing it because they're devoted to Islam or because they have a fanatical religious belief. They're doing it because they're being, their families are being paid or because their families are being threatened. And that's just one example. Another example, another thing that I think this book gets wrong is that, they, that it argues that people supported the Taliban because they were seen as the standard bearer for Islam in Afghanistan. Well, the Taliban does practice Sunni Islam or at least a, a, a variation of it. But really, the central reason why the, the Taliban has been so successful in Afghanistan, one of the main reasons why, is because of their Pashtun identity. Afghanistan is a predominantly Pashtun nation. That's the largest ethnic group within that country. Depending on how you count the, the numbers and depending on which source you cite, the number of ethnic Pashtuns in Afghanistan can be anywhere from 40% to just over half. So somewhere around 50% of the population calls themselves or considers themselves to be an ethnic Pashtun. And that is the identity that the Taliban capitalized on. They presented themselves as a Pashtun movement. They presented themselves as the standard bearer and as the guardians of the government and the nation of a, of a Pashtun country. In fact, there were times where we called the, the southern and eastern portions of Afghanistan, where Pashtuns mostly live, as Pashtunistan. And that was not meant in any way to be pejorative. That was not meant in any way to be insulting to that ethnic group. It was simply a recognition of the fact that because there were so many people from that group in that area, and it became that identity meant so much that it essentially became a country unto itself. That it essentially became not just an ethnic group, but an ethnic state. And that is something the Taliban used to their advantage. They presented themselves as the defenders of Pashtun values, of the Pashtun culture, and it's the Pashtun way of life. 
and they presented the government in Kabul, specifically the corrupt government in Kabul, as a threat to Pashtun identity, Pashtun culture, and the Pashtun way of life. And that had a very powerful resonance. That resonated very widely in southern and eastern Afghanistan. What I, and when, you, when I say it resonated widely, here's what I mean. I mean, when the Taliban presented things that way, it meant that people who were not involved in the fight against the government in, Af in Kabul became involved. It, it was a recruiting tool. It was a recruiting tool to attract new fighters. So even though the United States and coalition forces were very successful in using their superior technology to eliminate Taliban fighters on the battlefield, the Taliban was able to tap into a large reserve of recruits by capitalizing on the Pashtun eth ethnic identity. So that allowed them to not only replace fighters that were lost, but to keep their numbers growing and to spread their movement across that part of Afghanistan. And eventually, it allowed them to, to paint the regime in Kabul as anti-Pashtun. So not only was the regime in Kabul presented as, as the corrupt puppet of America, it was also presented as a direct threat to the Pashtun identity. Yes, the Taliban practice a puritanical form of Sunni Islam, but it's a style of an interpretation of that religion that most of the rest of the people who practice the same faith do not recognize. In fact, it's one where many, if you go to a place like Al-Azhar in Egypt, which is basically the Harvard of Islamic scholarship, you will find that most of the, the people who teach Islamic doctrine or who teach Sunni Islam to their students would tell you that the Taliban version is riddled with errors in Islamic jurisprudence. As one scholar there said, quote, they can't make even a simple statement without also making an error in Islamic jurisprudence. So yes, the Taliban do practice an extreme form of Islam, but it is not one that is shared by the vast majority even of people who also call themselves Sunni. And that's an important point because Westerners tend to frame this, especially here in the United States, there tends to be an, a type of argument where you'll hear someone say, the Taliban represents Sunni Islam, therefore anyone who practices Sunni Islam must be the same, has the same potential or could potentially become the same type of threat as the Taliban. Well, just because somebody wears a, wears a beard and practices Islam doesn't mean they're the Taliban. There's a lot of variation and a lot of nuance within the Sunni branch of Islam. And most of your mainstream Sunni will tell you that they would not practice Islam the way that the Taliban does. That they do not agree with the interpretation of the Quran that the Taliban adheres to. So it's a mistake to think that the Taliban is representative of Sunni Islam or that the Sunni Islam is representative of the Taliban. Yes, they use that, but they do so erroneously. They do so on the basis of their own personal and, and parochial type of interpretations, not one that is shared by the mainstream uh, Islamic community. So how does the Taliban make their money? How are they financed? This is another important dimension to understand about the Taliban activities. They make a lot of money on an illicit opium trade. Afghanistan generates through agriculture roughly 80 or 90 percent of the world's opium crop and that is all controlled by the Taliban and not surprisingly that amount of that substance on a global market commands quite a bit of money we're talking uh, income in the billions so that is one of the main reasons that the, one of the main ways by which the Taliban uh, finances their activities not just to pay recruits but also to purchase weapons the drug trade 
has been an ongoing problem for the coalition and American forces since we entered Afghanistan, and we really never figured out how to stop it. We really never figured out, we really never devoted all of our resources towards that. We were slow to recognize the importance of the drug trade to the Taliban, and we were slow to take action against it. And today, it's still thriving. It's still going strong. It's still how a lot of, a lot of the Taliban elements out there earn their revenue. And by the way, there's not simply one Taliban. The Taliban is not a monolithic organization. There are actually many Taliban, generally affiliated along family lines of different tribes that inhabit the south and eastern portions of Afghanistan. Now, they do, they do share a lot of things in common, and they've used that in order to organize against the government in Kabul. But if you look at the history, specifically just prior to 1996 when the Taliban first came to power, there's a long history of Taliban factions fighting each other. And the most likely outcome in the near future is going to be a return to those conditions as the Taliban will eventually re return to fighting themselves. That's just my opinion, but it's based on history and historical precedent. That's what happened in Kabul and in Afghanistan the last time the Taliban took power. But they, even then, they still relied on the opium trade. That's how they make most of their money. And that's a big part of their organization. So Pashtun identity and the drug trade account for a huge amount of the Taliban's revenue and their currency with the Afghan people. You know, Islam is probably a distant third to those other two factors, but it's often presented uh, to Western audiences as the primary motivation or as a primary factor when in fact it's not. Finally, we need to remember that military options are not our only options for exercising influence or influencing events that happen in Afghanistan, even under the, a, a new Taliban rule. Pakistan, which is Afghanistan's eastern neighbor, is a very, very interested stakeholder in what happens uh, from now on. Iran is a very interested stakeholder in what happens. Russia is an interested stakeholder because Afghanistan is on their southernmost border. So the potential for diplomatic influence and diplomatic leverage to affect events in, in Afghanistan and in the future put pressure on the new regime, whether it lasts or not, if it does, then there are diplomatic channels and different diplomatic ways to influence events that happen inside Afghanistan. So we have options that are non-military in nature that we need to remember. And we need to devote some time and effort to, to growing those, to increasing our diplomatic power in Central Asia. This is one of the key ways that we can influence events, even with our military gone, to prevent a further situation from occurring where terrorist groups or terrorist organizations use Afghanistan to plan attacks on the United States. There have been sanctuaries in Afghanistan for over 10 years, even while the U.S. military was there. There were plenty of areas beyond Afghan government's control and beyond the U.S. military's control where groups could have planned uh, further attacks on the United States. And the argument can be made that they didn't do so because they knew the U.S. military was right next door and could quickly respond. And now that's not the case. So now they're gone. But there's still the opportunity to exercise influence in Afghanistan through diplomacy, and we should do that. We should, we should do that because it's in our own national security interest, and it's a way we can help our Afghan partners and allies who all of these years have helped us and are now left behind under the rule of the Taliban. The American public has also got to become more educated and more involved with matters concerning national security. The failures in Afghanistan, the seeds for those failures were planted well over 20 years ago when 
the U.S. Congress failed to declare war on Afghanistan. We certainly should have, because that would have forced the type of debate over what the mission is, what our plan is, and what the way ahead is, and what objectives we hope to achieve, and it would have forced us to have that discussion in public and go on the record, where because we didn't do that, successive administrations and four presidencies now just kind of sort of wandered from, from mission to mission and plan to plan. There was never any overarching guidance, and a big part of the reason why was because Congress has been simply missing in action. Yes, four presidential administrations failed to figure it out, but at the same time, Congress failed to really pay much attention to it. Sure, if disasters happened or if, if certain flare-ups of violence happened, they would pay lip service to it and, and maybe have issue a few statements. But on the whole, congressional attention to Afghanistan has been absolutely abysmal over the past 20 years. They've pretty much ignored the SIGAR reports, which told us 12 years ago that systemic corruption in Afghanistan was threatening our mission. We continued to fund and finance the same activities, even though we were told and given clear and compelling evidence that the corruption from those finances were fueling the Taliban insurgency and would eventually lead to a takeover. That's not new or surprising. Yet Congress ignored it. And Congress ignored it because the American people ignored it. Congress didn't pay attention to this because the American people weren't paying attention. Congressional representatives knew that Afghanistan wasn't high on the list of voter priorities, so they knew they could get away with ignoring it. And that's on us as voters. We have got to do a better job of paying attention, holding our elected officials accountable, and educating ourselves on situations that we get involved with in foreign countries. We have got to play a better role as citizens in holding our elected officials accountable because we know what's going on. We can't do that if we have no idea what's going on. Without the information, without good data, and without an understanding of the world around us, we're going to be incapable of giving that and providing that oversight to our own elected officials. So we have got to do a better job of educating ourselves in order to hold our elective leaders accountable because that was completely missing in Afghanistan. Over the course of 20 years, and, and at first, in nine, at, right after 9-11, there was a high level of public attention. There was. But it didn't last very long. Even within a couple of years, attention uh, had already moved on to other places and to other things. And by 2009 and 2010, when the cigar reports on, on corruption in Afghanistan were being delivered, by that point, the country had essentially forgot about Afghanistan. It wasn't a top priority for elected officials or voters. So I hope in the future... We will take the time to educate ourselves, and there are many ways we can do that. Hopefully, when the travel restrictions are, are, are lifted from COVID, people will be able to go out and, and travel more. We need to be able to experience global travel in order to have a global perspective. You know, Mark Twain said, broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be obtained by vegetating in one little corner of the earth for your entire life. So we need to get out there and see the world. We need to understand it. We have to read. We have to read books and articles, and we have to give this some study. And I know that people have busy lives. They have jobs and families, and it's not easy to find more time to devote to something like this. But as we've just seen with the fiasco that took place in Kabul this week, when voters don't pay attention, elected officials don't pay attention. And when neither are paying attention, it leads the way to disaster. And that's exactly what's happened. So I hope we will do a better job in the future of educating ourselves and preventing the, uh, another disaster like this from happening. 
So thanks for listening. That's my take on the current situation in Afghanistan. Thoughts and prayers to all those who are directly involved. Yeah,